0: As EMS Week continues, we, on Monday, delved into the physiology of CPR, intrathoracic pressure regulation, and really challenging ourselves to understand the science of those patients we care for that are the most critically ill. On Tuesday, with our good friends at Lairdall Medical, we launched into the resuscitation workshop understanding the performance psychology behind teams, the difference between good leadership and good followership, how to bring out the best in folks to optimize your patient outcomes. And lo and behold, it is already Wednesday of EMS Week 2016, and we have no other than Mike Loria lecturing to us today on a topic that is very interesting and certainly requires more exploration. Equanimity, Puny, and Parachuting, Evolving Concepts in Optimizing Resuscitation Performance. And I had the pleasure of listening to Mike deliver this talk at cctmc.com. 2016. That is the critical care transport medicine conference that went on this past month in Charlotte, North Carolina, and it was an absolute pleasure. And we do in fact have several additional podcasts that will be brought to you from that conference. But a little bit more about Mike. As I mentioned, he barely requires an introduction amongst the pre-hospital foam community. He is currently deep in his second year of medical school, winding it down, preparing for his step one Board exam. And we know him from many places. Of course, he was a PJ in the military, and certainly operating in the most austere environment as a rescue paramedic. And at present, he also writes regarding the evidence base of the mind of the resuscitationist, really dialing in to one's inner psychology as we approach not only work on a day to day basis, but certainly things that push us to our limits. So, without further ado, please hang on for this amazing lecture by Mike Loria Equanimity, Puny, and Parachuting Evolving Concepts in Optimizing Resuscitation Performance. All
1: right, so good afternoon, both of you guys. Thank you very much for coming. Um, for those of you who haven't had the pleasure of meeting yet, my name is uh, Mike Loria. That way, a background. I was a car in the military while, so did combat, search, and rescue, and direct support uh, for different special operations teams. left the military and uh, got in a trip to transport and worked at that uh, dartmouth Medical Center in New Hampshire, the DART program. And uh, of course I'm a bluff for punishment, so uh, I got a crazy idea a while ago and decided to go back to medical school. So I'm in school full-time right now, and, and uh, working for D.M. still flying. Really, just keeps me sane. So, um, I'm a huge advocate of free, open access medical education. I think it's a fantastic thing for our community. So, I encourage you guys to get out your phones and iPads and computers and go ahead and tweet, text, post, whatever, and get this information out. And give me feedback. I love to hear what you guys think. I have no conflict of interest at this point, but in the second year of medical school, I will shamelessly promote anything for money, food, or beer. If you don't have any opportunities. No. What this talks about is psychological skills. I think it's just kind of interesting. I'm actually like a physiology super but recently I've become really kind of interested in how our minds work, how they process things, and how we operate under stress. And this talk is talking about how I can really train people, teach people different skills to improve their ability to assess their patients in the field. Make better clinical decisions, recall people's information, and execute skills, basic skills, relatively quickly and efficiently. It's kind of important. Really, I want you to get the walk out here with three things. First, how other organizations, how other specialties have approached this issue of, of getting their personnel to function and poised with poise pressure. Two, why that's important. The negative effects of stress. And three, what I call performance enhancing psychological skills. So, I'm mean, going to give you a handful of tools that you can leave here with and go home and apply on your next shift. Alright. So we will trying and talk back to 2005. So I'm finishing up my undergrad, and uh, I did what any level-headed biochemistry major would do. is I decided to my degree and I'm going to miss the military. Really not getting ready. Well, uh, it actually worked out pretty well. So I got into the care program, program, maybe through selection and the rest of the we started out with like 72 guys, and there were 6 of us that finished up. And, uh, from there, we went out to our individual units and got kicked out to all these different special operations. I mean, it, was, it was amazing. It was, it was uh, truly the greatest honor of my life to work with some of these guys. It was the greatest operational personnel, uh, on the face of the planet. And it was kind of cool. actually, the, the enduring lesson that I learned from these guys was how they managed to perform In these incredible circumstances. In some of the most dangerous environments you could possibly imagine, in some of the most hazardous places on earth, these guys were able to maintain cool calm, stay collected when when everything was going on, when the mission was going sideways, when literally the, the fog of war was starting to envelop them. These guys were unbelievable they were able to stay calm, they were able to stay focused, they were able to see this crystal clear path to successfully completing the achievement. And that was really, really important. And when I started thinking about it, when I started to analyze how people did it and when people did it, the, the example that I wanted to talk about that I wanted to give you was something we did on a regular basis. and provided a, a, a lot of practice for holding these skills. And that was parachuting. So you might, you might imagine, it's a little bit stressful when you're hurtling to earth at about 130 miles an hour. If something goes wrong, you know, malfunction, you've got about 20, 30 seconds or so to figure it out, and you might know be can And to complicate matters, it's not like the skydiving video you can see on YouTube, you have tons of equipment. On Body, magazines, weapon system. your medical equipment, 15 to 65 pounds of medical equipment. Plus rescue kit to literally jump the jaws of life in my lap. So that sort of limits your mobility, decreases your dexterity which are things that you want in this situation. Um, and what makes it more the thing is when you do this for real, it's dark now. It's mm-hmm. completely dark. So, yeah. It's a little bit challenging. So you can just imagine yourself on the edge of this ramp, looking down at 11,000 feet Little bit, any guy, you're your heart rate up there. Did anybody else's heart rate go up when we were showing that video in the last uh, lecture when Sullenberger took off? And he's like, ah, no, not are this. My heart rate went just, just listening to that and recording. But, you've got to perform, because, you know, Sullenberger got 155 people who got that aircraft. And our you stand standing in the ramp, and somewhere down in that darkness is someone who really needs help. You've got to get it. So, it's performance really matters. When I started to talk to people about this, what I realized was they had all these little mining games and tricks to kind of keep themselves calm. You know, they didn't really read the psychology literature about this. They just sort of developed their own little tricks over time and sort of keep themselves, keep themselves nice and calm and focused. Everybody had their own little, little tricks. I mean, uh, some people would say monkeys, some people would say players. Um, some people would have different behaviors, or like routines, have anybody in like that, in your program has like a routine or something they do for a guy your whatever. I would actually take a paradox to prove to myself, so I would, I would stand there for a couple of seconds and I'd say it in my head. It's my duty as a to save life I you need to. I'll be prepared okay at all times, to perform my assigned duties quickly and efficiently, placing these duties before my personal desires accomplish. These things I do that I'm doing. And that calmed me down and it brought me focus. It reminded me why I was there and what I was doing. And helped me get the return. So, later on, when I started actually doing it, some What I found fascinating was that other guys were kind of figured this out long before us. And in a very academic way, had explored this. Very interesting. Guys like this. So this is Avat-seni Kuhn. You've probably never heard of it. And in fact, no one in the U.S. has had until the late but throughout the '50s and the '60s, this guy was the one that the Russians had to help them, you know, dominate the international athletic. Very, very interesting. This guy did a lot of research in how athletes prepare uh, to deal with the stress of competition in front of hundreds of thousands of people. And what he did was he developed this, this philosophy that he called hoibaya gotonost, which means the will, the willingness to, to fight, to compete, to persevere, and to win in competition. And his philosophy had essentially five pillars. The first was developing sensible self-confidence, not overestimating your abilities, but not selling yourself short or questioning what you're, what you're really capable of. Also, uncompromising effort sounds pretty reasonable. Numbers three and number four are particularly interesting to me. So optimal emotional arousal and developing a high tolerance for stress and distraction. And finally, number five was self-control. And this was more of an overt control, you know, not freaking out when you didn't get your way, or the ref didn't call things your way, or, or, or you were losing. So, what he did was he took these five things and he built a systematic approach to training the athletes. This was really the inception of sports psychology. He called it the psychological preparation for competition. And this was the finishing, this was the finishing touches, the icing on the cake for the athletes to make sure that, you know, their skills were squared away in training, but mentally they could deal with competition. And you know what, I really think there's something to in addition to training as scientists and clinicians, perhaps we should also spend at least a little bit of effort training our minds as if we were resuscitated. Preparing ourselves to deal with that stress. Not just passively by going through simulation, but actively by learning skills and submitting to that. So I don't understand that, all right. So, we're talking about military stuff, we're talking about like crazy Russian psychologists, but what technologies have to do with medicine? And has anybody even thought of and it? And the answer, interestingly enough, is yes, before anybody else was. And in fact, some famous people, like this guy, thought of it. This is William Osher. This is by many people considered to be the father of modern medical education. If you go to medical school, you're slapped in the face left and right on potentially everything this guy ever said. Okay. And he's very famous for his, uh, for his ideas of how we train physicians. In other words, he was the guy who said, you don't learn about disease in a You learn about disease by going into a hospital and working with sick people. And that's become very popular. However, what's less popular and less well known are some of his other ideas. For example, this one. So okay. in 1885, Osler gives an address at uh, the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, And the title of the address is Aquanimatus, which means equanimity. The definition of equanimity is balance or even mind in times of great turmoil or stress. And in his address, he talks about it, and he says, what we need to in people is imperturbability. The ability to not be perturbed by circumstances around you. And he talked about this very specifically. He said this was coolness and presence of mind under all circumstances, calmness in its storm, clearness of judgment in moments of great peril. And he was very clear and said that this was indispensable for any quote physician or surgeon. And I would extend that to PA, nurse practitioner, paramedics, nurse, etc. So, it's important when you're jumping out of It's important when you're continuing to win. Daniel Sondheim, I totally understood, is important in martial arts. It's important in the boardroom, when you're trying to make a multi-million dollar sales pitch. It's important when you're up here, talk in talking from a whole bunch of people. And I would admit to you, it's important when you're in the back of an aircraft at 2 o'clock in the morning and your patient is trying to crumble. Very important. So why should we consider this? Why should we consider developing tools to help people deal with this issue? Well, it's because normally like when we train people when we evaluate, input you know, go for tests. Right? Or you're doing like a skill station you're getting checked off, right? But as you guys often know, there's a huge gap between the environment and the environment that you which is fraught with all this stimuli that create a stress response. And we know, we know, time and time again, this has been researched, and time and time again, the evidence is very consistent that acute stress causes your performance deteriorate. I'm sure you guys have all been it, right? You're really worried about something. Like in the last episode you we're talking about, you lose a little bit of your situational awareness. Sometimes you forget things. You don't you, go actually, you don't actually pick up on several things Your pocket abandoned your strength. And for those reasons, it's really important, I think, that we address this.
0: Hey friends, I'm going to take a brief moment to pause the show and bring you a word from our sponsors. No, not the sponsors you may traditionally think of, but rather sponsors that are aimed to help eliminate healthcare disparities. This is a very special project I'd like to announce during EMS Week for folks to trial. It comes at absolutely no cost and is ultimately designed to optimize your training experience and help translate into improved outcomes within your community in relation to out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Recently, a group of colleagues of mine and I had the pleasure of coming together and reviewing the science and literature on feedback in CPR, and the data pretty much speaks for itself. Dr. Bobro, the state EMS medical director of Arizona, has done tremendous work on this, and we now know that all the major defibrillator companies come with some sort of active CPR feedback. Nevertheless, we are acutely aware that once you know a single EMS system, you know a single EMS system, and budgetary constraints are real-world problems and challenges. Not everyone can afford the defibrillator component to their device. So, what have we done is designed a watch app for the Apple Watch called Perfect CPR. Now, we should be very important to state this is designed for training purposes only, but nevertheless, Once a provider opens up the app using the accelerometer and gyrometer built into the Apple Watch, you will be able to get direct feedback on your rate, depth of compression, as well as recoil. So please check this app out. It is available at $0.0 in the Apple Watch iTunes Store and it's called Perfect CPR. Please also find us and follow us on Twitter at Perfect CPR. Again, we're beta testing for this. Very excited to launch during EMS week at a cost of $0.00 and would love your feedback. We can all do a part to help improve the health disparities within our country. And feedback is definitely a requisite component to that. Check us out.
1: So one of the most popular uh, perturbations of this research was that guy named Dave Rosen. So Grossman is actually Carmen ranger psychologists, along with some of his colleagues, Bruce Siddle and Mike Gadsby, did a ton of research on how stress affects performance, and not to what they found in the 90s and early 2000s, matching up against some of the landmark work that was done many years earlier by guys like here, and that a little bit of stress is probably good that we get a little bit exciting, the heart rate comes up a little bit in your performance, experience. and once you, once you get beyond it, you add additional stress, everything starts to deteriorate. You start to lose fine motor control. Your cognitive bandage begins to shrink. You start to forget. things. eventually you get to the point that they prefer that it, it in zone black, all the way on the right side of the diagram here, where you're filled up in a view of to yourself, which is really suboptimal optimal for what we do, I would say. Um, but, but what was most interesting, about the research that they did at this point in time, was they were able to show that this is peak level of performance, you could actually extend it. By teaching people different psychological skills and slowly exposing them to increasing levels of stress, what you could do was you can extend that peak performance. You could allow them to be in the zone, performing at their very best under greater levels of stress, which is really interesting. So, and this has been reproduced over and over and over again. Some of the most interesting stuff that I wanted to point out to you guys was done by NASA. Amazing, amazing researches, astronauts that project. shows essentially the same stuff. So, how can we improve? This? How can we actually improve our performance? Well, I believe that one of the things we can do is teach people active, cognitive, individual skills. Hmm. That's kind of interesting. And it's all based on this very sort of ubiquitous concept that uh, we call the cognitive Triangle. And this is nearly you of, of neurotransmitters and nerves and your brain. And all these things are kind to different. Right? How you feel, what you think, and how you act or your behavior are all essentially tied together. And you can affect one corner of this triangle by dealing with or attacking other corners of the triangle. By so affecting how you think, you can affect how you feel. And this has become essentially a cornerstone of psychiatric management of, of anxiety disorders, phobias, and a whole host of other things. So what I'm suggesting is instead of using this to treat pathology, you can use it prophylactically to prepare people to deal with the situation. So, what I want to do is take my experience, take the anecdotal evidence of other physicians and nurses and paramedics, and I want to overlay that with what evidence exists. And when you do that, what pops out is what I call performance enhancing psychological skills, and the abbreviation I'm using BTSF: Beat the Stress Rule. So it stands for Breathe, Talk. And focus. Ironically, shout out to uh Reed and some hands. It takes an Australian to put together the Mr. T thing. I couldn't figure that out. But nonetheless, the same thing played. So let's go through this crap. Right. So breathe. Really interesting. If you think about it, breathing is the only conscious control you have over what's otherwise an audion. It's really hard to sit there and say, okay, look, let's go down. Go down. Right? if it did. It wouldn't see like everybody and their mother on the beta blockers and AC systems. Heart rate changes, But you can control your respiratory cycle. And there's evidence that suggests that by controlling this, you can mitigate other downstream effects of arousal and stress. So activation the nervous system activation of the uh hypothalamic pituitary adrenal access, that adrenaline rush that you get, you can actually mitigate those by using breathing. And as you'll see it in the literature, it's usually referred to as tactical breathing or boss breathing or something along those lines. Essentially what it is, it's just a controlled respiratory phase. As some people do it is take a deep breath of four seconds in, hold the breath in for four seconds, exhale for four seconds, and then hold it out seconds. So when you think about it, 16 seconds and you're excited is kind of a long laboratory phase. So, um, whether you're goes 3 seconds or 2 seconds, or just taking a couple of deep breaths, I think you can get very similar effects. <coughs> so, talk. Positive self-talk. One of my favorite um, one of my favorite legends is actually an old church legend. Uh, and the way it goes is the is trying to explain to his son uh, the conflict that exists in every, in every person. And he says this conflict, the beautiful analogy, and essentially two wolves always fighting inside each person. And one wolf is hatred and fear and uh, anxiety and jealousy, all the bad things, and the other wolf represents all the good things, happiness, joy, peace. And he goes on and on, eventually the grandson asks him, he says, so how do you know which wolf wins? The Grandpa looks at him and he says, the wolf that wins is the wolf that you see. I think there's some truth in that. And actually, in the literature kind of backs this uh, up. Because if you, if you look at people who go into a challenging event and question their ability, or they say like, oh man, I don't know if i in been a while since like, oh my gosh, I've never cried somebody before. Oh. If you question your ability, people tend to become distracted and they perform much worse. But, if you feed yourself sort of thoughts of, of, of affirmation, positive thoughts, reinforcing thoughts, I can do this, this person needs my help, I've trained to do this before, I, I can make this happen, I have to make this happen, this person's life in my hands, then those people do that, it maintains their focus, and they perform consistently that so by doing this, by feeding yourself these positive words, I know it sounds a little bit silly. I thought it was completely ridiculous. I thought I it sounded way too little engine that could. But it really bears out the research. By telling yourself this stuff, what otherwise is impossible what might be possible, and what you're otherwise unable to do, suddenly you can you can actually knock it out. You with your your well-trained team, right? Last week or four, almost C S, yes, right? Visualize. Have you ever seen, like, watch the Olympics and seen, uh, like, a swimmer on the starting clock, or a diver or uh, someone, uh, you know, playing golf in the Masters? Have you ever watched someone actually sort of close their eyes and sort of uh, go through the motions of what they're about to do? It's actually really, really powerful. So, what I'm suggesting is, like, when you're going to set up the unit area, actually getting all the equipment in your mind, use this powerful simulator that sits in your ears to actually run through the steps of the innovation. Walk yourself through those <laughs> steps. Because, as it turns out, when you run through it in your brain, it's essentially like giving yourself a practice. If you look at fMRI scans of people who are actually thinking about an activity, they're, uh, they're vividly walking themselves through the activity in their head. And compared to people who are actually doing the activity, it's essentially, the same parts of the brain light up. That's amazing. So, you giving yourself a practice run right then and there before you actually go to incubate this person or put it in the chest tube or whatever. So, what's more interesting is just recently, this past year, uh, Chris Hicks and uh, Rollo and their team actually looked at, and did a randomized control trial. They took surgical residents, anti residents, and emergency medicine residents in Toronto. They talked the all, potentially of you know, trauma lysis or PTLS resources. And then, they randomly assigned those residents to two groups. One group got about a half 30 minutes of uh, CRM training, teamwork training, and review of trauma assessment. The other group was told to just sit there, close your eyes, and quietly rehearse, in your mind, how it's going to look when the patient comes through the door, how it's going to look when they transfer the patient over to their thought. What you're supposed to do, based on your position, is where you end up around the patient. And guess what? Surprisingly to a lot of people, the group that just did mental practice consistently performed better. So that was kind of cool. Granted, small, single center trial, but uh, not definitive, but I think it showed substantial promises and at least uh some uh, interest in this area. And finally, focus. So focus is about using trigger words. Using a trigger word to transition you from this, this, this period of sort of preparation, of getting all your equipment together, to actually executing tasks. <coughs> and that's important. Because this trigger, the, the trigger, what that word does is it brings all of your mind's attention to bear on what you're doing. And as we just learned in the last lecture, your attention, the capacity of your attention span, is really important. People who are distracted and not quite as focused on the task at hand, whether that be reviewing a patient chart, evaluating a patient for actions or actually performing a skill. People who are distracted perform consistently worse. The people who are able to focus and maintain that focus perform better. So, develop your trigger word and use that to transition and bring your focus to bear on the task. So, EGI has to beat stress group.
0: There are some caveats and
1: limitations that I want to mention. This has to be individualized. Okay? Uh,
0: what stresses me out
1: may not stress me out. I don't do a lot of new You may be a neonatal transport specialist. So you have to, have to figure out what triggers you. And you have to come up with your own auto stuff, your own trigger word, whatever resonates with you. To you still have to go on the technical things. You still have to fall the training, absolutely. I'm not saying you have to do that. I'm not saying you to sit around and sing bikely roll your boat ashore and imagine things in our head and go out and then two pictures. Not train your mind. All that other stuff is absolutely requisite. It has to be incorporated in practice. I use the term psychological skills for everything. It's like any other skill. Airway skill, vascular access skill. You have to practice this stuff. You can't just expect to it out in your pocket. It takes months before hope it fails. out. It has to be incorporated into your practice regularly. And ultimately, when it becomes, you know, like an Olympic acrobat, it's just habit. As soon as you open that pour that end, you're like, whoa, this is not going to be easy. This is, is going to be a lot. Um, you automatically sort of start taking a deep breath and fall into using the TSS ability to And it hasn't been researched yet, at least in this whole component. There's a lot of evidence to support all those pieces, which is why I'm drawing to together. But all four of them together, seeing, you know, randomized and full to factors, it added performance, hasn't been done yet. We're working Actually, it's Chris uh, at the St. Mike's Hospital in Toronto, Canada. It's right now setting uh, uh, all one. And and well up our the control trial to see if this works. The stress inoculation I want to point out is not just about stress and out. It fundamentally incorporates these psychological skills. In other words, what we do is we teach people about stress to We do a deep dive on physiology of stress. Then we teach them, we go over, we assess them, and we teach them to develop their own skills. And they develop them practicing on mannequins. Individual skills like intubation and chest. And then we begin to slowly ramp it up in simulation, adding more and more stress, giving them the opportunity to practice these psychological skills. So I'm sure some of you still aren't full right. you are like, is this really worth it? this is really worth our time? on, We're killing people left and right. We want to blame the real original skills and people there. That's what we want to practice. That's what we gotta do. Okay, fair enough. And you might even add and say, "Well, this is really like a oh, 1% thing, this is very, I mean, the number of things that really carry is that deal with are, that's probably kind of rare, 10%, 5% of our patients I'll give you even less, say it's 1% less. I still give you. In fact, about a year and a half ago, I gave a talk and why 1% matters. And what we did was, we looked at the natural systems, including human physiology. And it's very interesting because at the extremes of those natural systems, like in your Olympic competitions, or like even at the edge of your compensatory capabilities in your shop, little things can make a big difference. And if we really, really, really want to provide superior free hospital care, if we want to be excellent, I say all those little things count. Up to and including Using psychological skills. And I'll leave you with this last thought. If you take all the RCTs and the p values and the confidence and and you step all that to side, what it comes down to is at the end of the day is that number of situations you right? And it might only be an analytic one. But I bet you that's a really important one to some people, like the person who's under stress. Or their family. Someone's son, daughter, sister, brother, wife, husband, right? And when we have these patients that are really, really critically ill I think we owe it to them to be at our very best. Our technical skills, our mental skills, our psychological skills, everything needs to be brought to bear. Because sometimes, every little bit helps, and every little bit counts. So, if you guys really like this stuff, uh, please take uh, PTSS and try it out, see what works. Let me know if you like this human factor stuff. Go to any and check it out, and put up a post about putting up a post at this point. You know, every month or two, as my academic schedule allows, and uh, and let me know what you think. If you guys think that I'm totally blowing smoke, go ahead and, uh, check out this QR code. This will take you to, uh, the list of references, 50 some odd references. That's the evidence to support what I'm suggesting here today. And if you don't have a QR code reader, just go ahead and email me, uh, or tweet at me, or whatever. That I'm happy to send you all the references, all the slides, everything I've got. Thank you guys very much for coming.
0: Thank you so much for listening, EMS Nation. We're excited that you continue to join us during EMS Week, and we certainly appreciate your support. And all the sharing that you're doing. This is a special EMS week for us, 2016. We're certainly helping to, or rather hoping to get the podcast out to as many providers as possible and really exploring whether we can make this podcast a vehicle for providers looking to not only advance their understanding of, you know, cutting edge pre hospital concepts, but also to potentially gain CE credits. EME credits for continuing medical education, regardless of which state you all are coming from. So if that's something that would interest you and you'd like us to push forward with that, we would love your feedback. Certainly leave a review on iTunes or tweet us at EMS underscore nation. EMS nation. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. And thank you so much for dedicating yourself on a daily basis to go out there and provide incredibly high quality pre-hospital care and to committing to be on a path of both personal improvement as well as systems-based performance enhancement. Now, we'd like to remind you we could really use your support. If you happen to have an Apple Watch, we'd love it for you to download the Perfect CPR app and use it during training and let us know what feedback you have. At present, it's designed to give audio as well as haptic feedback during training cardiac arrest scenarios, and our hope is this can help improve outcomes both in the community and on a systems-wide basis to help decrease the disparity in outcomes in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Please tune in for the next episode of EMS Nation during EMS Week. This is Faison Arshad wishing everyone a safe tour.